this is what went wrong with our response as an American church to issues of homosexuality, is that we focused entirely on the ideological and the love your neighbor or what I would call the, um, the pastoral response was entirely lacking. Uh, we, we acted as if this was the only thing, but really you have to lay the foundation first. You have to start there and understand what a life of following Christ in conditions like this looks like, and then you have both, um, uh, both the credentials as well as the understanding to start to say, here is ideologically where this doesn't align. And so since, especially with issues of, um, of transgender, uh, since we're kind of on the cutting edge of dealing with this as a church, I want to model a different beginning. Again, not because the other parts aren't important, um, but our response to the issues of our, dear sh- uh, of our day should never be led by fear, but always by love, right? God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind, okay? And so, instead, we're going to talk primarily about experientially what falls into these, um, into these boxes and how we respond in love as Christians. And we're going to begin um, with intersex conditions. Okay. Now, actually, there aren't a lot of Christian works that engage with intersex concepts concepts. There were only uh, two that I was aware of as I did my study, and both are helpful for different reasons. Um, This one first uh, by Katrina uh, uh, Karkazis. She is not a Christian, um, and she's not writing about ideology at all. Instead, what she's done is interview practitioners of sex assignment sh- uh, surgery at birth, okay, doctors who are dealing with ambiguous genitalia in, um, you know, in the birth floor of our hospitals, uh, and then those who have experienced those surgeries later in life as adults, okay? Uh, and so what she's really trying to do is connect the dots between those who experience these conditions as well as those surgeries and the general thinking on those things, but her her definition here is helpful. At birth, the sex of every infant is determined based on an inspection of the external genitalia and an understanding of the newborn as a girl or a boy. Right, that's not terribly scientific. It's, It's not something that we bring in an expert to do. Right? It's just an instant assessment that's made uh, that is validated by our usual experience of male and female genitalia. The process of gender assignment at birth is usually uneventful. But each day, somewhere in the United States, an infant is born for whom gender assignment is not obvious. These infants may have any one of numerous diagnoses, but their common feature is gender atypical anatomy a combination of what are typically considered male and female chromosome, gonadal, and genital characteristics, which is often signaled by the presence of what clinicians call ambiguous genitalia. Okay. Uh, now, I want you to, um, to notice here, she references three parts that make up biological sex. Okay. They are chromosomal, Right, so at the chromosome level, XX determines a female sex, and XY, or t- 
to put it in a more simple way, the presence of a Y chromosome at all determines male sex. Okay, then we have gonadal differences. That is at the internal sexual organ sense, okay? In, in other words, we're talking primarily about testicles and ovaries, okay? And then there's genitalia, the external sexual organs. For the most part, everything we're talking about in an intersex diagnosis is an incongruence of those three levels, okay? And so they may be chromosomally male, but gonadally female with female genitalia, okay? Or they may be chromosomally and, uh, and gonadally male, uh, but with, um, for example, androgen insensitivity syndrome, uh, their body doesn't respond to the testosterone that's produced by male gonads, and so their body develops female anatomy instead, okay? But it's an incongruence between these three levels of biological sex. That's what we're talking about in intersex. Okay. Um, also helpful here is Megan DeFrenza. Now, Megan DeFrenza is a Christian. In fact, she's a Christian professor. And we've quoted her book um, quite a bit in this class. But again, the idea of her book is to think about the Christian concepts of male and female and try and do so in a way that leaves room for the humanity of people with intersex conditions so they don't fall through the crack and become somehow subhuman. Uh, her book is very interesting and very helpful in places, although some of her conclusions um, I do not agree with. It is a great read. But notice what she says here. The term intersex is not a diagnosis, but an umbrella concept used to cover a wide range of variations in sex development. Many intersex conditions result in ambiguous genitalia either at birth or throughout the life course of the individual. However, not all intersex conditions are indica indicated by genital inspection. The Consortium on the Management of Disorders of Sex Development lists the following as intersex-related conditions. Congenital development of ambiguous genitalia, congenital disjunction of internal and external sex anatomy, misalignment between gonads and genitals, um, incomplete development of sex anatomy, Okay, and so the parts are there, but they haven't fully developed. Sex chromosome anomalies and disorders of gonadal development. It may be best um, uh, moving on here to prevalence. Okay, because intersex is a umbrella term for all sorts of conditions, and because those conditions differ quite a lot on how they manifest and how they're understood, and even how we come to find out. Uh, that these conditions are held. Um, there is internal disagreement from people of the conditions we're going to talk about on if their condition is an intersex condition or not. Okay. And so that makes it really hard to talk about prevalence because we can't really draw a circle around who we're talking about. On top of that, because many of these conditions go un undiagnosed, we also have a difficulty in discerning prevalence. Um, for example, there are many women who suffer from andro uh, andro androgens insensitivity syndrome, who if they never go on to try and have children, never discover it. Okay, um, But there is still some numbers we can grasp onto just to get in the right ballpark. It may be best to represent the figure as a range such as 0.02% to 1.7%. 
For the argument of her book, it's enough to note that even with the most conservative numbers given by Sachs, there are at least about 50,000 true intersexuals living in the United States at this time. Okay. She goes out to point out that even the most conservative estimate, as I've mentioned in another lecture, the 0.02%, the bottom of that range, is at least as common as Down syndrome. Okay. Now, that being said, um, in, in my own life, I've only talked with one person who identified as intersex, and she told me that she had never met another one in Seattle. But remember again that not everybody agrees on if their own personal conditions are this and both the nature of the, um, the unpublic nature of most of these conditions as well as the hidden nature even to some people that have it um, would limit that to some degree. Okay. Um, so I want to walk through a couple of different types of intersex diagnoses. And the reason I want to do this is to kind of get you a feel for what we're talking about, as well as give us a basis to answer the questions at, a, at an ideological or at a theological um, concept of how do we think about these things? What does it really mean at the biological level to be male or female? Because there are some who suggest that the the reality of intersex at all, the fact that there are people uh, whose genitalia are ambiguous or people whose primary three levels of sex are out of alignment should cause us to question the binary nature of sex entirely. Okay? And this can suggest a bunch of different ways. Um, sometimes it's thinking of sex instead as a bracket with many expressions in between. Okay? Sometimes there will be discussion of what they call a third sex, which is a, basically intersex becomes a interim position between traditional male and female. But as we'll see tonight, as we look at these different conditions, um, understanding them helps us to think these things through. And so the first one that I want to talk about here, this is the first time I've tried on such a large screen, so I don't know if you can read that, but I'll walk through here. Um, at the very top of the list there, we have uh, congen congenital adrenal hyperplasia, okay? Um, C people with CAH, CAH are chromosomally female, two Xs, okay? But due to an overproduction of testosterone, they're born with genitalia that appears more masculine, and this is a range, okay? Anywhere from a fused labia to an enlarged clitoris. Uh, this is the most common diagnosis referred to as intersex, okay? Although they may develop male secondary sex characteristics, body hair, receding hairline, deep voices, they have internal female reproductive organs and are capable of reproducing. Okay. So in this condition, what we're talking about, um, notice here are, are uh, female genitals, female gonads, female chrom chromosomes, but because, um, because the gonads overproduce testosterone, um, it slightly masculinizes their genitalia as well as their secondary sex characteristics. But as is pointed out here, they're capable of uh, reproducing. Their womb is fully functional. Okay. Uh, the next one on the list uh, is AIS. This is the one I mentioned earlier, androgen insensitivity syndrome. These people are chromosomally male, meaning they have that Y chromosome, but the cells of their body are incapable of processing testosterone. So, 
how this all plays out is right at conception, okay, uh, at the chromosomal level, they, the chromosomes take shape as either XX or XY. Okay, if you can reflect back on seventh grade science, right, that's because both parents have their own chromosomes, XX and XY, and whether that half of the man, the Y chromosome, is passed on determines these things. That happens pretty much instantaneously. Okay? And it is the DNA that is the blueprint for how those things move forward. Okay? And so the next thing that comes along is the gonadal level, and we're not talking about fully developed gonads at this point, but, uh, but basically we're talking about um, the production of testosterone and estrogen. In other words, we're talking about hormonally, as these cells divide and populate, how those cells are shaped by the hormones that are present. Okay? Um, and, uh, and it's near the end of that that the details of the physical anatomy, specifically in terms of genital genitalia, take place, okay? And so what happens in androgen insensitivity syndrome is the plans are laid out for male, uh, but because of some blip in the blueprint, the cells aren't shaped by the testosterone that the gonads are producing, not very strongly anyways. And so, um, so that's AIS, okay? So they develop... Um, female internal and external organs. They retain undescended or partially descended testes. Remember, they have something that produces testosterone that it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't receive, okay? The body doesn't respond to it. Often this condition, AIS, is not discovered until puberty when menstruation does not occur, okay? So externally, uh, these, these people are presumed to be female. Presumed by themselves, by their parents, by doctors, by everyone. Unless you do a chromosomal test, you would never know that they were chromosomally male. Okay? It's not until their bodies don't function at the female reproductive level with menstruation um, that these people go and go, why isn't this happening? And then the tests show that it's AIS. Typically, these folk have unquestioned female gender identities. They see themselves as female. They've never questioned themselves as female. They generally live out their lives as female. Okay. Uh, then there's Klinefelter syndrome. Okay. Klinefelter syndrome is a chromosomal condition where there are extra X's or extra Y's. Okay. So usually chromosomally, human beings are XX or XY. Uh, people with Klinefelters are XXY or sometimes XXYY. Okay. And so uh, what this means, uh, first off, because there's a Y, okay? These males, all of them are male, have small productive organs and very low testosterone. In puberty, they can take feminine characteristics like breasts and fat-laying patterns, okay? The Klinefelter syndrome association does not see their condition as intersex, but all persons with the syndrome is unequivoc unequivocally male, okay? And so they're male, the Y is present, but it's not fully developed the way that it should be, and that limits um, usually the possibility of them reproducing. Okay. Finally, 
Uh, last example, there are other conditions, but this covers altogether, all four of these covers the wide majority of conditions that we're talking about. Um, the last one is Turner's syndrome. Okay? This is females missing an X. Okay? Again, human beings usually have two chromosomes, X and Y. This is a single chromosome, uh, and it's just the X. Sometimes this condition is called XO, right? because the other X is missing. Okay? External genitalia is clearly female, but the gonads are underdeveloped. Okay. Now that we've looked at all four of these, we're equipped to see a few things. First off, um, although intersex conditions are clearly a confusion of biological gender traits, gonads, genitalia, secondary sex characteristics, chromosomes, it does not eradicate the idea of dimorphic gender or require a spectrum of understanding or understanding of gender, even if we just look at what we've talked about and we don't move any further, um, we still see that AIS is the only one that might give you pause. Every other one is primarily about underdevelopment. It's only AIS where somebody is chromosomally and entirely biologically completely different. It's only AIS where there's no ambiguity at all that's faced until birth. It's only AIS where uh, somebody sitting in this room would be identifying as a woman, maybe engaged or married to a man, and then goes to the doctor and goes, actually, you have a Y chromosome. Okay. All the other conditions have to do with clear and visible developmental problems. Okay. Um, but all these conditions, including AIS, are rooted in developmental problems. Okay? All of them have to do with something going wrong in the gestation period, beginning with conception and ending with the full development in utero. Something goes wrong over the course of that process. In fact, some organizations are calling for a relabeling of intersex. When I say some organizations, I'm not talking about external medical or scientific organizations. I'm talking about organizations formed by people with these conditions themselves. Okay? Um, some of them are calling for a relabeling of intersex to disorders of sexual dis development, DSD. Okay? Now, I want to take some time to um, talk about gender assignment surgery. Now, I know some of you may be familiar with that term in terms of transitional surgery for transgender communities. That's not what we're talking about right now. What we're talking about is decisions that are made for an infant when there is some ambiguity in their external genitalia. Okay? That's what I'm talking about. Okay? Even when we talk about assigned sex here, I know that can get our cackles up because, because sex isn't assigned, it's a given. But in this one, it actually is assigned. A decision has to be made. Okay? Um, I want to talk about this process for two reasons. Um, one, because doing so will help us to get into ideologically how the world is dealing with these things. And second, um, because we as Christians should come to some conclusions on how we feel about genital assignment surgery. So... First thing I want to point out is that currently, clinicians, those who are making the medically informed authoritative decisions to move towards male or female genitalia in the questionable cases, currently, clinicians seem to agree that chromosomes matter.
In other words, we would call them chromosomal essentialists. If we say, what is the difference between male and female, conceptually, at a biological level, we would say, is there a why? Okay. Um, now, a lot of this revolves around a single American medical thinker by the name of John Money. John Money literally wrote the book on what to do in these cases, on why it mattered. He got all of the press on it, okay? And so either the theories are Money's theories that operate it by in practitioners or a response to Money's theories, okay? In his earliest works, Katrina says here, Money argued against the use of chromosomes as the sole determinant of gender assignment although he suggested that genetic males who were under-virilized should often be raised as female, he re recommended that infants with a 46XX karyotype, primarily those with CAH, always be assigned female. Even though an infant's chromosomes were important, Money argued that chromosomal types should not dictate gender assignment. Indeed, beginning in the 1950s, he was a vocal critic of those who deemed chromosomes the essential marker of sex. Okay? So when Money started to write the articles on this and shape the industry, he said, we're paying too much attention to chromosomes. And it's important to understand why that was the case. Marking a major shift away from Money's view, which rested on a fluid understanding of both sex and gender development. Okay, so fluid understanding of sex and gender development. In other words, the most important thing shaping somebody's sense of sex is nurture and not nature, is environment and not biology. Okay. Money saw gender as being primarily a cultural construct. And his primary fear was for the children that if their genitalia didn't match clearly and obviously their sense of gender, not the one they had internally, but the one imposed upon them by society, that they would have a hard time being well-balanced human beings. And again, I think many of us understand this. If you can think back to your own discovery of your own biological sex, it has a lot to do with exposure to your parents' naked bodies and noticing the difference between your parents and yourself and how you align and these types of things. Okay? Um, and so because money had a social construct view of gender that was fluid and shapeable, the most important thing was to do that in a way that was believable. Right? that was congruent. And so the question wasn't, what sex are they really? That wasn't really part of his paradigm. It was, which one is going to lead to the most healthy self-understanding? Which one are they close enough to? Which one can we, through technology, shape the most like to make them comfortable in their own skin? Okay. But now, uh, she says, both the pediatric endocrinologists, okay, those are people dealing with hormonal development of children, and the urologists I interviewed expressed grave reservations about making gender assignment contrary to an infant's genetic sex. What's changed? As Dr. H puts it, going against the karyotype, XX or XY, is something you're fairly hesitant to do. It's the last straw. Dr. D concurs, we once thought that you could assign a genetic male female. That's what I was taught. But you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who would do that now. John Jones showed us that we just can't 
override things in that way. Now, I don't know if you remember the story of John Joan, but that is the byproduct of the, uh, the practice of John Money. The original case that John Money used to prove the fluidity of gender and, and present his practice was a child who was chromosomally male and being raised as a female. And so he wrote a book when Joan was, a, this is a pseudonym, of course, when Joan was about five years old and she seemed to be relatively and happily aligned in her sense of gender and it was seen as a success story. What happened is when Joan grew up, she started to wrestle with how masculine she felt on the inside. Um, and she ended up transitioning to the life of a man. And then it's a pretty sad story. A few years later took her life. Okay. And so when John Joan was kind of investigative journalist exposed, it shook the world of practitioners on this because they went, oh my gosh, are we completely wrong? Here is someone who did not know their diagnosis and internally and instinctually knew, apart from the fact that everyone around them either didn't know and treated Joan as a female or did know and was devoted to that gender expression, it went sideways. Okay? It shook things up quite a bit. Okay. Obviously, part of what we're talking about here is the relationship between nature and nurture. And let me just remind you that Christians believe both are significant. Um, but I do want to point out that at the scientific level, most practitioners are chromosomal essentialists. Okay? Chromosomes matter. Okay. Now, this, the last point I want to bring up in here, um, so we've talked about a couple of them. Okay? First, um, all these conditions are rooted in developmental problems. Everybody agrees that something goes wrong. Okay. Second, everybody agrees that chromosomes matter. And third, when we're trying to understand this, we have to gauge sexual bodies not only in how we find them, but how they function. Okay. Sex isn't just a pre-existing condition, it shapes a function, it serves a purpose. And so we can't ask what intersex is unless we see how it relates to function. Okay. Alastair Roberts here. Intersex bodies and bodies with intersex conditions are not evidence of further sexes in addition to male and female. Even though particular types of intersex conditions may possess a distinct and identifiable characteristic. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying the bodies are different. But notice what he says. Their sexual organs of intersex persons are not ordered to some different sexual end of their own but are abnormally and or defectively lacking in the typical function of male or female form, imperfectly related to the ends of male and female sexual organs. In other words, the parity of male and female, as we've talked about, work together for the function of procreation. These bodies don't work towards a different function. They don't pair off in a different way. Okay. Instead, they fail to function in that way at all. Their abnormality is usually connected with evidence that the ordinary processes of sexual differentiation have gone awry in some recognizable manner, developmental. That they are generally considered defective doesn't arise from the rarity of such conditions. 
okay? When we say intersex conditions have a defect, that's not just us abusing the minority because they're not like us. It's again focused on the functionality of sexuality and its design and the unfunctionality of intersex conditions. Okay. Not from the rarity of such conditions, but from the fact that they can't effectively do what sexual organs are supposed to be able to do. They are disordered male or female bodies, or bodies that are neither male or female, at the very least, to claim that they are a further sex would seem to require some far-reaching reevaluation of how we determine bodily organs to be functional or not. Right? We do that with all of our organs. The difference between a good one and a bad one is, does it work? Okay. Why do we sometimes pull out a human organ? Because it's not functioning the way that it should. Okay. There may be some sort of an empirical spectrum between male and female, albeit one overwhelmingly populated at the poles. However, the existence of such an empirical spectrum is not proof against sexual dimorphism, because there remains only two functional forms of sex around which specific human beings are clustered. To finish here, all intermediate forms are departures from these without an integral purpose of their own. Okay. So when we look at these conditions, they do present fallen realities of sex as it was designed. And those fallen realities, by definition are something going wrong in the developmental process, just like other forms of birth defects, and don't lead to a complete and differently ordered way of being, but a non-functioning way of being. Okay. And so if the question is, how does intersex shape our understanding of gender, we don't actually bring anything new to the table. We already know that we live in a world that God designed in one way that is now fallen and does not always align with that design. Okay? But it shouldn't lead us to question the design. When God created them male and female, we shouldn't read that as God created a bracket or a spectrum. And male is at one end and female is at the other and there was room in between. No, it's through the fall and the brokenness of our world and bodies that we experience these conditions. Now remember, we should be careful in how we talk about these things because we're talking about real human beings who live with the hand that they were dealt. And so we shouldn't make them uh, ideological illustrations, exhibit A, B, and C, and deny them their humanity. And so we should be careful in these things. But I find that a lot of times when Christians first encounter people talking about intersex as demonstrating these things, they don't actually know what intersex is and now that we've looked at it, you can see that, um, that there's a different way to understand those things. Okay. Now, second, I want to talk about gender assignment and genital surgery. Now, again, the odds that any of you in your life are going to face the decisions we're going to talk about are relatively slim. But the odds that you're going to know people who face these decisions, whether they tell you about them or not, is actually quite a bit higher. Okay? Um, and here is a place where I think Christian ideology does not often come to bear in American thinking, which is in the practice of Western medicine. We, like most Americans, think we have technology, so we should use it. But things are never that simple. 
We've already talked about that in terms of procreation, both with, um, with uh, options like the pill, as well as uh, options for procreation like in vitro fertilization. There are other questions that have to be asked. Technology is not morally neutral inherently. Okay? In the same way, we need to take the time to explore these issues. Okay, first, we need to talk about the difference here between gender assignment and genital surgery. Okay. When we say gender assignment for an intersex condition, it's determining the gender of the patient as well as the gender identity to raise the child in. Okay. So looking at those three factors, chromosome, gonadal, genitalia, is this male and female? Do, we, do they live out their lives as male and female? Genital surgery, is performed to remove the ambiguity of the genitals or more clearly align the genitals with the assigned gender. Okay. So to just lay something obviously on the table, we can do one without the other. In fact, that's what the majority of human history has done with these conditions, is determine male or female and then raise them in that way. But the option to um, you know, through plastic surgery and other ways, shape genitalia to fit that, it's relatively modern. Okay. We as Christians should have significant concerns about genital surgery, and primarily, we should have these concerns because they're being voiced by those who have experienced these things. And notice, just for a second, how unique these surgeries are amidst all the other surgeries that are a part of modern life. Okay. They are done upon an infant, okay, so the person who bears the consequences of these decisions doesn't make the decision for themselves. Okay. Also, they are currently expressing not just against my will, which is a really limited way, right? I'm sure you've seen the court cases where children are suing their parents because they were born, okay? Against my will isn't necessarily the significant thing, but they're also talking about the consequences of those decisions in their own bodies and lives, and they are the best ones to determine the quality of care, right? They're the ones who are most likely to be able to say the surgery was a success or a failure. They should get a vote, okay? But here's the concerns, okay? First off, these surgeries inherently focus solely on appearance, and specifically appearance at a young age. Right? This, the shaping of these things are done both for the looks and they're shaped while the child is young. Okay? And, and we're dealing with human tissue here and not something else. And so the possibility of growth and change is built into the process. But you're building at the infant level. Okay? Bodies post-surgery will change with time and development. Okay? Second... They're usually informed by ease of surgery. Okay? Although most clinicians, like I mentioned, are chromosomal essentialists, so they won't go against the grain of that. Other than that, they'll make decisions based on which direction is easier to move in. Okay? Surgeons explain that feminizing genital surgeries are believed to be easier to perform than masculinizing procedures given the present state of technological development. Simply put, it's difficult to construct a well-functioning penis that can both urinate and stand erect. A vagina, on the other hand, is not considered as difficult to construct. Okay. 
And so there's, there's an ease of surgery bent towards feminizing the patient. Okay. But there's a related problem here, and that's that not only is there a focus on appearance, um, not only is it determined by ease of surgery, but it also focuses on sexual function and not sexual pleasure, especially at the expense of females. Okay. The goal of these surgeries is, will they be able to procreate? Kessler describes the frustrations of many that though a well-functioning penis is often the criterion for male sex assignment, a well-functioning vagina, one that's self-lubricating, sensitive, able to change size and shape, is not required for female sex assignment. A vaginal opening with the potential of receiving a penis, even if it's painful, is all that's required. Now, I'm not saying that this is somehow innately or even passively sexist. That's not the point. Uh, the point is that the um, qualitative assessment of what they're trying to accomplish is too narrow, innately. They're, they're just serving one goal. Can we make an organ that will interconnect with an organ of the opposite sex? Okay. When there's a whole lot more involved. Okay. Often, these are performed and encouraged to be formed by clinicians at a young age and therefore without the patient's say or consent. And this goes again back to John Money. The earlier you deal with it, the better, because then the child won't know that it's happened. Okay. But that does bring up the issue of say and consent. Okay. Not only that, but often these surgeries take healthy and functioning anatomy and seek to change it for appearance sake. Okay. So... They work, they function, they can urinate properly, um, they, could, they could even potentially, depending on their bodies, procreate, but they look funny. Okay. Um, so they take healthy and functioning anatomy and seek to change it for appearance sake, which often leads to a life of follow-up surgeries, pain, and complication. Okay. This is uh, tremendously difficult surgeries done on tremendously sensitive tissue. Right? And so through the life of a body, it's very rarely one and done. It often involves a series of follow-up adjustments, fixing what you broke along the way, etc. It often involves a lot of pain, some of it permanent and pervasive in the patient for the rest of their life. Okay. And it also involves complications. Okay. Now, outcomes of sex assignment surgery are generally done immediately. Well, how'd you do, doctor? Looks pretty good. Okay. Um, they've never been properly assessed, including data from patients as adults. Okay. Even though when we talk about fully functioning genitalia, we mean adult functioning genitalia. Okay. 20 to 30 years later, these studies haven't really been done at a clinician level, okay? And some of this is because patients are lost track of or unaware of their medical history because their parents never told them, right? And so there is no way to assess because we don't know where to find them. They don't know they need to be found, okay? Not only that, but when studies are done, because techniques are constantly evolving, clinicians can say, well, that was then, but we're much better at it now. But do you see how that just constantly kicks the can down the road? Okay. Here's a summary of the root problem. And again, um, Karazis here is not a Christian. 
But I want you to notice that she focuses on an ideology, ideology uh, that we should recognize as being innately idolatrous. Okay, this is what she says. Medicine, specifically Western medicine, is often driven by hopes, desires, and even fantasies of abolishing disease and ameliorating life. Physicians and patients or their surrogates often do what technically can be done simply because it can be done sometimes at the expense of any proven benefit because they're caught up in what Mary Jo Del Vicio Good has called the biotechnical embrace. Indeed, one mother I interviewed is hoping to find out more about corrective surgery to fix the corrective surgery. Okay. Do, do you hear the impulse in this mother? We broke it with surgery, but surely we can fix what we broke with surgery. Not even going, would that just be adding more fuel to the fire? Supposedly, normalizing genital surgery has failed to incite much critical commentary from physicians and the parents of young children despite the degree of intervention which some have argued transgresses a myriad of ethical boundaries. Okay, pause. The entire Western view of medicine, right, is based on the Hippocratic Oath, which con contains most simply the phrase, do no harm which is basically more than just if you wield a scalpel, don't, don't use it to murder. The idea of do no harm is don't intervene unless it's necessary. Don't do surgery, because surgery is dangerous, okay? So it's always a weighing of risks when we do medicine, and you are much better off never receiving surgery than receiving it, just generally. But this doesn't ask those questions at all. It just jumps right in and says, this is a necessary procedure, when if we just stop for a second and go, but is it? Going back to that idea of biotechnical embrace, this is better living through chemistry, right? This is, uh, you know, what was the, the theme from the $6 billion man? We can rebuild him, right? It's the idea that if we set our minds to it, we can solve all of these problems, and it is idolatrous for two reasons. One, because it makes modern medicine, and specifically the te technology of human beings, a savior. Uh, and two, because it's tremendously arrogant. And we have generation after generation of medical failures that should make us humble in our understanding of the human body and our ability to set things right. It's not that medicine isn't constantly improving, it's that we can't trace that line out forever and think that eventually we're going to beat death if we just keep trying. Okay. But that underlies all of these things, and then who bears the brunt of that? People with intersex conditions. Okay. Um, so, transgresses a myriad of ethical boundaries because it's the body's transgressions of gender norms that cause even more concern. So why is the real reason these surger surgeries are done? Because it makes parents uncomfortable. And again, understandably so. I'm not saying that these children are selfish and want a little boy or a little girl. They want what's best for their little boy or little girl. They're concerned about what this means for their life and these types of things. But ultimately, it's the ambiguity that needs to be dealt with and not the bodies. Ultimately, it's not an unhealth that needs to be dealt with, but the ambiguity. And that is as... Uh, Carizus says, cause for concern. Of course, there's no guarantee that people on whom surgery is not performed will fare any better since living with atypical genitals will certainly have challenges as well. 
But early surgery adds another layer of complexity to the issue because it's irreversible. It may cause harm. It involves a bodily intervention and because the patient does not participate in the decision. Surgery is not the only or the best way to help these children. And in the rush to surgery, it's too easy to forget we have other tools at hand to help children and their parents adjust to their condition and that people with these conditions may require ongoing, lifelong support regardless of surgery. Now, the last point she makes is a good one. Because of this biotechnical embrace, uh, because of this over-idealizing of, uh, of um, medical science, if the surgeon is done and it appears to be a success, that's the end of caring for these patients. There's no follow-up appointments. There's no um, support groups, right? The whole idea is to remove the ambiguity so it's no longer an issue, and so then you're off on your own and alone, okay? Which is very different than we handle almost every other condition. If you're a cancer survivor, there's a support group for you, right? If you've given an organ, there's a support group for you. There's ways and means to continue life as if this is a part of it, but because this is primarily about erasure, we leave these people without those options, whether the surgery is there or not. For the Christian, it does not follow that ambiguous genitalia need to be or possibly even that we should suggest they should be surgically corrected. We know that there are things in life that medicine cannot fix and that Jesus will essentially, eventually set right. We all live in that place between the misalignment of God's design and the day when God will set it all right in Jesus Christ. We're okay with that delayed fix the one that calls us out to say, even still, come Lord Jesus. The one that groans with all of creation, longing for the redemption of our bodies. Okay. Now, I want to come back and talk about then what that means for us as a church when it comes to intersex people. But first, I want to talk about transgender. And before that, I want to take a break. So let's go ahead and take a break. Before we do, does anyone have any questions? Yeah, Heidi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was known to be chromosomally male when John Money performed the surgery. As a five-year-old girl, it was judged to be a success and highly publicized and shaped much of the practice of the world in the 1950s. Um, but due to what happened with John when he became an adult... Um, after he'd lived his life, grown up as a girl, and then started to just kind of hit the wall on his own sense of gender, explore, find out what was done to him, pursue a different way of life, and choose to express himself as a male, um, a investigative reporter put out a book, which is easy to find, just Google John Joan, um, that again shook up the entire world um, and made them realize uh, effectively that they were playing with unknowns. Well, it wasn't an experiment. Like, uh, like I mentioned, it was just like these other gender reassignment surgeries. And so they knew the chromosomes. Uh, I don't remember the details enough to know gonadally what they were dealing with. Um, but they decided, again, because of the ease of the surgery, that it would be easier. Oh, oh, I totally remember now. Okay. Uh, he was not born intersex. I forgot this. 
he had a botched circumcision. He lost the majority of his penis in an accident. Okay. Sorry, I completely forgot that part of the story. Um, but it still illustrates what we're talking about. Do you see why he was an appropriate test subject? Because he was biologically across the board male. Can he be successfully raised as a woman? And it was seen as a success until it wasn't. All right. So, we've talked about intersex uh, conditions. And now I want to move on to, um, to transgender issues. Okay. Now, kind of like when we use the word intersex, the word transgender is also an umbrella term. Okay. There's quite a few things traditionally that have fallen under this, and they're not all the same, um, nor should they be treated as the same. Okay. Um, so, for example, there is cross-dressing which is often related to sexual arousal, okay? In, in modern language, it's a kink. It has to do with, uh, with sexual desire through gender expression, okay? Uh, there are drag queens and kings which cross-dress for entertainment and may have interconnected with other issues, but ultimately, that's just about entertainment, okay? It is a form of culture expressed by the LGBT community at large. It's connected to these issues. Of course, many, um, many drag queens or drag kings uh, who cross-dress for entertainment um, are also from, uh, uh, from the LGBT community, um, but, but ultimately it's not about a sense of gender as much as it is uh, gender transgressive, right? It's pushing against things. Um, Okay, there are gender queer folks who use transgender as a broad term, but basically what they mean by that is that they don't identify with trans uh, uh, traditional ideas of gender. Okay, and so they're pushing back by this term by saying I'm neither male nor female, or I don't believe that male and female are real constructs or these types of things. Um, and then there are transsexual people who seek to present a different gender than their biological or birth gender. Okay. Um, now that is the one that we actually need to focus on tonight. Um, and to understand that, we need to understand gender dysphoria. Okay. If we're talking about a diagnosis of somebody who, uh, who is experiencing gender dysphoria, um, this is from Mark Yarhouse's wonderful Understanding Gender Dysphoria. As far as I know, and it's probably changed by now, but when I started working on this class, this was the only book dealing with transgender issues from a Christian perspective. Now I know of one other, which is total trash, and just you shouldn't waste your time with. You should just read this one. Um, Yarhouse is a clinical psychologist and a Christian. Um, he focuses on issues of same-sex attraction and issues of gender dysphoria. He sits with these people every day, week in and week out, and has for decades. Um, he is not just a primary voice from a Christian perspective of this, he's a primary voice in American psychology on this. He is one of the sought out and most well-known practitioners um, in these things. So he points out, gender identity concerns, or what we refer to as gender dysphoria, refers to the experiences of gender identity in which a person's psychological and emotional sense of themselves as female, for instance, does not match or align with their birth sex as male. Okay. Now, there's something I want to point out right here, 
which is just like there was a time where uh, the church responded to same-sex attraction as if it was just a choice of the will and was not coming from any form of innate desire, innate disorder on the inside. It was just a rebellious acting out or what have you. Um, in the same way, we have to watch out for viewing transgender as just being a choice with no underlying issues. Now this is not to say that our junior hires aren't full of people who are, because of cultural trends, over-identifying as transgender and playing out these um, gender transgressive scripts that are flying around right now. Um, but what we should be most interested in is the actual condition um, that people are responding to in gender, uh, uh, in transgender issues, which means gender dysphoria. Okay, so again, let me read it. Experiences of gender identity, who I think I am by gender, in which a person's psychological and emotional sense of themselves as female, for instance, does not match or align with their birth sex as male. Okay, um, so notice right off the bat that this is different than intersex. Intersex is when the primary markers of biological sex are somehow incongruent. Here, all of them say the same thing. Chromosomally female, gonadally female, genitalia female, secondary sex characteristics, all female. But the sense of self is male. Okay. That difference is tremendously important. But gender dysphoria is not just that sense of difference. It's the pain experienced in that sense of difference. That's what brings in the dysphoria. Dysphoria means being uneasy about or generally dissatisfied with something. Thus, gender dysphoria refers to the experience of having a psychological and emotional identity as either male or female and that your psychological and emotional identity does not correspond to your biological sex. This perceived incongruity can be the source of deep and ongoing discomfort. Okay. So again, to nail down the difference in what we're talking about here with gender dysphoria versus intersex conditions, um, that's not what I want. Um, whereas in intersex, there's some ambiguity or difference in the aspects of biological sex. In gender dysphoria, all the aspects of biological sex are unambiguous and congruent. However, they feel like their body does not align with their own sense of gender. Okay. Now that being said, that does not mean that their condition is completely unbiological. Okay. What I'm saying tonight is that intersex conditions have a disordering of the sexual biological traits. Again, chromosomes, gonads, genitalia. Here, what we're talking about is still very possibly biological. It just doesn't involve the sex organs or the chromosomes, but the brain. Now, um, the, the going theory right now that explains this incongruence between a sense of gender and the biological sex uh, is called the brain sex theory. And let me be clear, this is not a proven theory, it's not even consensus. But it is the only view of these things that has gained any traction in trying to understand these things, okay? Brain sex theory points to this condition as also being one of sexual development disorder. Okay. And here's where this concept comes from. 
As I mentioned earlier, chromosomes begin at conception, either XX or XY. Six weeks into gestation, uh, gonads begin. Okay. External organs begin at eight weeks. Now, both of those continue to develop after those points, but that's where they start. But the brain doesn't go through masculinization or feminization until the second half of development, past the 20-week mark. Okay. When we're talking about masculinization and feminization, what are we talking about? We're talking about the brain being awash in the hormones the gonads are producing. Okay? And so male brains are different because they're soaked in testosterone. Female brains are different because they're soaked in estrogen. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but conceptually, that's what we're talking about. But that doesn't happen until much later, after the biological sex has already completely aligned. Okay? The theory is that something changes between that period that causes the person hormonally to switch, resulting in a feminized brain in a male body or vice versa. Okay. Now here's the problem. One, like I said, a little bit of an oversimplification. So we can't just take a needle and suck out and go, oh look, there's way more testosterone here. Okay. Um, two, all of the studies that have pointed to this have been done on um, on transsexual people who have gone through hormonal treatments their entire life, so their brain is far from neutral hormonally. Okay? Um, but even if this is the case, the problem of gender dysphoria is not in the body, biological sex sense, which is healthy and normal, but in the perception of the body according to the mind. Now, the, this, is, this is the thing. First off, again, we as Christians should understand and be sympathetic to this diagnosis. That somebody experiences an incongruence in their sense of self and that that causes them discomfort and sometimes severe frustration, pain, depression, etc. We have a box to put that in as Christians. We all experience those aspects in life where things don't align. Okay. Adding to that a potentially biological level should just add another amen to the end of that sentence. Okay. Um, the concern we have in, as Christians is not the existence of people who experience gender dysphoria or the grief and the pain that is caused by those things, but the plan of care and treatment and how to recover a sense of self. Okay, that's where these things differ. Generally, the primary approach that is presented uh, now, and this has evolved amazingly fast, okay? I was telling Kevin just before, before we regained, uh, regathered here, that there was a while here where the primary um, uh, prognosis, not that, uh, not diagnosis, but the primary advice given by by people to gender dysphoria was weight. Especially because, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, most gender dysphoria shows up first, and this is important, in kids younger than five. But it doesn't become dysphoric and problematic until puberty when their body begins to betray them. Okay. So they might, they might have this sense of, I'm different than other boys. They might have this sense of these types of things when they're young, but when they go through puberty, 
and they start to develop all of those secondary sex characteristics, then they feel their body moving against the grain of where they want to be. And that's where dysphoria really shows up. So it used to be very common that the suggested form of care was weight. And we'll come back to that. There was even a camp that argued that what would be best to do is to use hormone blockers to delay puberty so that you could have an adult brain to make such a significant decision. Now, because of the transgender bathroom issue, because of the ideological issues, now people are aggressively and progressively pushing these things very early and quickly, sometimes without parental consent or knowledge. Okay? Um, and so things have moved very quickly on this issue. Okay? But traditionally, now, this involves um, uh, a whole range of things. Okay? So sometimes it involves low doses of hormonal treatment, which just takes the edge off your dysphoria. Sometimes it involves high dosages of hormonal treatment, which start to move your body in the other direction. Okay? And then oftentimes now it culminates in transition surgery, where there is a genital replacement surgery and sometimes breast augmentation, um, and that transition becomes, um, in some sense, biologically complete. Um, gender dysphoria, again, should evoke our compassion, but we can still disagree with the common ways of managing it. Okay, again, a problem here is that it treats healthy and rightly aligned. All sex aspects line up. All of them function. Um, it treats that body instead of the mind where the problem is. Okay. It takes what is a... And remember, when I say psychological, I don't mean non-biological. I mean even if biological taking place in the brain. But it takes a psychological condition and fixes it with a biological surgery. Okay. And not a lobotomy or something like that, but one on the body. In other words, it takes the skewed sense of self and aligns the body to fit that skewed sense of self. Okay. Now again... We need to be careful here. Um, the original way that we dealt with gender dysphoria was hormonal treatments that aligned with the body, and that went very badly. Okay. It caused anxiety and the dysphoria uh, and the suicide rate all to spike. Okay. And so it's not a simplification of they just need a little bit more testosterone. No, it, whatever this is, it is, um, I hate to say permanent, but pervasive, okay? Maybe even at the biological level, untreatable, okay? At least right now. Um, but, but there is, again, a uniqueness in the way that we're responding to this on just the general assessment of medicine as a whole, okay? We're going against the grain of how we usually go about treating other things. Um, uh, Yarhouse quotes McHugh, who's written on this topic of uh, transition surgery quite a few times in newspapers. Indeed, McHugh goes on to suggest that psychiatry is essentially catered to individual preferences and cultural pressures, fashions of the 70s that invaded the clinic. Side note, that fashion is basically that the, that the patient drives the treatment and not the doctor, the psychologist. Okay. He likens sex reassignment surgery to liposuction for anorexics. Now pause. This is a very helpful illustration, but can be a tremendously harmful one. 
It's not one that you should slap around with your gender dysphoric friends, okay? But at the ideological level, it is helpful for providing a parallel for critique. He likens sex reassignment surgery to liposuction for anorexics. It's not obvious how this patient's feeling that he is a woman trapped in a man's body differs from the feeling of a patient with anorexia nervosa that she is obese despite her emaciated catechate state. We don't do liposuction on anorexics. Why amputate the genitals of these poor men? Surely the fault is in the mind, not the member. McHugh elaborated on his argument in a more recent opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal. It, the transgender suffer a disorder of assumption like those in other disorders familiar to psychiatrists. With the transgender, the disordered assumption is that the individual differs from what seems given in nature, namely one's maleness or femaleness. Other kinds of disordered assumptions are held by those who suffer from anorexia and bulimia nervosa, where the assumption that departs from physical reality is the belief by the dangerously thin that they are overweight. Okay? Um, and so that is primarily where the concern comes. Now, not only does it treat the healthy and rightly aligned body instead of the mind, but also transition surgery cannot create the genitalia of the opposite sex. Just an amalgamation of those genitalia or a facsimile, often with complications. Okay. In other words, they don't change healthy bodies of one sex for healthy bodies of the other. Okay. Replacing your functioning and healthy genitals with a pseudo version of the opposite sex doesn't change your gender. Not only that, but according to many studies, the quality of life post-transition is fought with hardship, depression, and suicide. In other words, it doesn't appear that transition surgery deals with the gender dysphoria. Now, many critics of that will say, but isn't that because we're so unaccepting of people who don't pass the test, right? Who present themselves clearly against their gender and because of the isolation we give them or the negative response, maybe that's what's leading them to the suicide rates. Uh, but it doesn't line up with other similar cons uh, conditions of refusal or exclusion or where the world is at right now where there are plenty of places and communities of acceptance and understanding for these things and yet the rate is still as high. Okay. Now I, I want to add one more thing here. Um, which is when, uh, when we look at gender dysphoria, like I said, it generally starts to rear its head, even though it's been a pre-existing condition, usually before age five, during puberty, okay? Um, here is a significant study. Um, there was a study done uh, somewhere in the Scandinavian countries um, that discovered if you defer any form of treatment or diagnosis on young teenagers, over 80% of them, the dysphoria goes away by adulthood. Okay. Now, if you read uh, transgender ideologists, they call that junk science and try and throw it out, but there are no counter studies. It is a small study, that's true. It's also the only one we have. So there is no evidence to disprove it, but there is something else we need to keep in mind. Of those 80% that as adults no longer identify as being the wrong gender for their body, almost 100% of them identify as same-sex attracted. 
okay? So this is not just a phase or a fluke, it's a personal misdiagnosis of what's going on in the body. I thought that I was female, but actually I'm just attracted to other men, okay? Would be a better way to understand the studies, okay? And so it's not a removal of these things mattering, it's a being quick to jump to conclusions that is actually leading the problems. Here is a fascinating article. I know you guys probably don't usually read The Stranger. I know that I've told you that I usually do. That's my neighborhood newspaper. Um, but there is a author there who has been writing for the last few years by the name of Katie Herzog, and she is journalistic gold. Not only is she writing for a liberal paper and constantly pushing back against some of the insanity, um, but she is willing to follow things despite the fact that it regularly betrays her own audience and she's ready for it and handles it, okay? Now, things you should know about Katie Herzog. One, she is a lesbian. So part of what she's been writing about has to do with where we started in this class with the, the division between lesbians and the transgender community and the problems that are there, okay? Second, she was diagnosed as gender dysphoric as a kid outgrew it and identified as a lesbian. Now, here's what's interesting. She wrote an article a few years back called The Detransitioners about transgender people who had treated themselves hormonally and reserved gender reassignment surgery and then decided to transition back. Okay. Now, what's really amazing about this article is the response to it was so swift and heavy-handed from the transgender community but she wrote a follow-up article, and if you read it, she already was prepared for that response. Uh, and she just shows it. Um, but she is the one who points out that this study cannot be just labeled away as junk science. She is the one who points out, as part of the LGBT community, and no, no friend of Christians, she's very critical of us, by the way, and sometimes rightly so, um, but the article is fascinating to read because she's pointing to the problem that we also observe in Christians in this is that the ideology is getting way ahead of ethics, of science, of sanity, um, and that we should express concern here, again, not because it doesn't fit our Christian mold, but because these people are made in the image of God, worthy of love and compassion, and this response leads to harm. Now, even when I've talked with transgender people and I've talked about these concerns at this level, we've had cordial conversations and they've walked away from it knowing that I'm not just some bigoted Christian who just wants them to die, but actually what I want for them is life, okay? Um, but that brings us to the question, which is, okay, what is the Christian script? Remember when we talked about homosexuality and Mark Yarhouse made the case that we don't provide a compelling counter-narrative, a compelling script that gives meaning and community to same-sex attracted people, okay? In the same way, what is the script here? And the first thing we should ask is, does the Bible address these issues at all? Now, the most natural place to turn is in the book of Deuteronomy, where here in 22.5, it says, a woman shall not wear a man's garment nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Okay. And so, it's clearly here, this is a commandment. It is prescriptive, not descriptive. It's not necessarily or directly connected 
to the creation narrative like we've seen in other places. Uh, and it doesn't address the significance of the reason for this act at all. Right? It doesn't leave room for gender dysphoria or anything else. It's just who can wear which clothing. Okay. Now, Yarhaus points out that the EPAC says that this verse is primarily maintaining a distance from Canaanite rituals. In other words, the concern here isn't about gender expression at all, but again, about pagan religious rituals. And we're pretty sure, there's, this is becoming really questionable now, but we're pretty sure there were cultic prostitutes and that there were sexual acts of worship and that some of them would have, uh, would have involved cross-dressing. But this is not stated in the text. And as we saw in Leviticus 18 with homosexual sex, abomination can also refer to creation standards. Deuteronomy sees gender expression as being important because it says something about God's design in the differentiation between male and female. Now, Mark Yarhouse came to time, town a while ago, um, and I had a chance to throw my question into the ring and hope that he would answer it. And the question that I asked him was, what about 1 Corinthians chapter 11? You may know it as the head coverings passage. Why aren't we talking about that and the significance for this issue? Um, but he, he didn't choose my question or the moderator didn't, so I still don't know his answer. But it is worth keeping in mind here, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since this is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man, okay, now he gets to the moral logic, why does he give this advice on head coverings? For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, we don't have time to explain this passage. It is a very difficult one. Okay. But I want to draw a few obvious points that are uh, uh, unavoidable. The first is, whatever Paul is talking about here, he roots again in Genesis 1 and 2. Okay. In other words, men and women are different, and that extends to the way they dress. Second, that difference is found in relationship. Do you see that? It has to do with the relationship not just between men and women, but between a husband and a wife that determines these things. Now, just a side note on this passage, Paul's concern here has to do with what's happening in a church service, not what's happening in a bedroom or in a place of business or anything else. It has to do with uh, specifically head coverings and prayer or head coverings and prophesying, right? But ultimately, see that little word authority, it has to do with relationships, relationships between women and their church and church leadership, relationships between wives and their husbands. Now, continuing here, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman. Okay? Yes, woman was made out of man and for man, but all the men in this room were made out of a woman. Okay? 
There's an interconnectedness. There's, there's a back and forth. There's a flow here. None of us can separate ourselves from the opposite sex. Okay? And all things are from, your, from God. Now, this is also important. Notice what he says. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that a man wears long hair? It's a disgrace for him. Now, that is that same word we encountered last week, fizzin. But here it's being used culturally. How do we know that? Because he says, judge for yourself. He says, as a normal Corinthian, judge for yourself. What do these things mean? Okay. Because it's not natural that women have longer hair. Right? If a man, man doesn't intervene, he has longer hair too. Okay? In fact, anytime I think about natural long hair, I always think of lions, where the male has the long hair and the female has the short hair. Okay? But what he's saying is, culturally, your whole culture expresses the difference between men and women in terms of head coverings. And so they are pushing back against cultural norms that express creation truths for the sake of some other form of freedom in the church. Okay? In other words, Paul's principles here are theological in creation. His expression is culturally restricted. Why don't we wear HUD coverings in our church? Because they don't mean anything in our culture. But gender expression absolutely does. If someone, male or female, puts on lipstick, they do it to say something, don't they? The question is two things. One, is what we're saying really true? And two, does it say that truth to our culture? Now, we could talk quite a lot about this because obviously culture is constantly evolving and changing. We've had periods of deep androgyny. Uh, you know, we have people who are on the cutting edge of what's comfortable, the David Bowies, right? Is, is that breaking what we saw in Deuteronomy or breaking what was said here? It's tough to tell. Ultimately, I think we have to ask about motive. If you're trying to blur the lines between male and female, you don't really have a biblical branch to sit on. Okay. But if the path has already been broken and it's become acceptable, it's just a cultural norm, not a biblical truth. Let me remind you that all of the men of the Old Testament wore things that most men today would be uncomfortable in. So the idea that pants are male and skirts are female is relative. That's why Dorothy Sayers says, maybe the reason I want to wear pants is not because I want to be a man, but because I'm doing things that require the utility of pants. Okay. But notice here in the New Testament, Paul says gender expression matters because gender is a God-created ideal and Christianity is an expressive religion. Right? We're trying to communicate these things. Okay. Again, there's a lot of other questions we could ask about this text, but this is the irreducible complexity of this passage. These are the clear and obvious truths in application. Okay. He finishes here, he says, if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for if hair is given to her for a covering, if anyone's inclined to be intentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, that last line is not a loophole. He doesn't say, these are just my opinions, but it doesn't really matter, we don't have this standard. He's saying just the opposite. He's saying, no other church is doing what you're doing, church, and being gender transgressive. Okay. No one has this practice. Cor Corinth's entire problem as a church is that they're doing their own thing in every area. Okay. And Paul reiterates that again. He says, there's no grounds for you to do this practice. This is just Corinth being Corinth. Okay. So, 
we do see both of these places where, again, gender expression matters. But does that deal with the issues of the intersex and of those who experience gender dysphoria? It may shape the boundaries of their behavior, but does it offer anything to explain or help them to understand or find a place in their condition? It does not. If this is all we have to talk to the intersex and transgender community, again, we get stuck in a vocation of no. I'm sorry you feel that way, just don't wear a dress. Okay. Instead, we need to remember to think about the eunuch. What was the whole concept of the eunuch as Jesus brought it up? Those who were not aligned to God's created design for sex and gender. Right? Those who wouldn't experience God's created design of male and female in marriage and procreation through children, but were the eunuch. And side note, there's a partner to the eunuch in the Old Testament. Do you know who it is? It's the barren. They go together. But here's the thing. Before there's good news for eunuchs, there's bad news. Going back to Deuteronomy, if we go, okay, does the Bible talk about eunuchs? The first reference to eunuchs is here in Deuteronomy. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now the Jews made a distinction like Jesus did between the castrated eunuch and the eunuch of the son who was born with abnormal genitalia. Eunuchs of the sun, according to the rabbis, were allowed into the temple. Okay. So intersex people had a place in Jewish practice, in Jewish worship, in the Jewish community, in the temple themselves. They had a category for that. Okay. But those who were made eunuchs by men, or those who had made themselves eunuchs, or even, as you see here, those whose testicles are crushed, that's accident, were excluded in the Old Testament. Now again, remember that the Old Testament worship is innately symbolic and even parabolic. Okay. And so this distancing teaches us a lesson not about the sinfulness of eunuchs, but about the design and the goodness of the design and the nature of the fall. Okay. Let me put it a different way. Why is there a veil in the Holy of Holies? Because in the world as it is, being in the presence of God is dangerous. Is that where we are now in the New Testament? No, the veil has been torn in Jesus Christ. And interestingly enough, it's the same for the eunuch. Last week I asked you for homework to read through Acts chapter 8. Let's look at it now. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, go towards the south, the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. So notice this man. Here he is. He works for the royal government of Ethiopia. He is a eunuch. He has been castrated for that role of service. As I mentioned before, that probably means that he's at very least a slave, maybe a prisoner of war. This isn't something that he accepted a job posting for. Okay. Um, but here he is, and he's traveling down this road. He's actually headed home to Ethiopia. Notice he was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now generally, like I said last week, we think about this man primarily through the fact that he is non-Jewish. And that's rightly so. Luke puts three testimonies right next to each other. Cornelius, the eunuch, 
and Saul of Tarsus. And that covers the gamut of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay? That's intentional. But he's also a eunuch. And I want you to notice here where he'd come from. He'd come from Jerusalem. And why was he there? On official court business? No. A personal pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He'd come for worship. Now, what would he have found when he got there? That he was excluded. That he couldn't come in. Just like Deuteronomy said. Not only that, he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Okay. Now, this says something about this man's worship. Now, for you to read the prophet Isaiah, you either have a Bible at home or you can just go to a hotel and open, open a Gideon's, right? Uh, usually, I guess it's just New Testament, but the point stands. In the ancient world, what does it mean that this man is reading Isaiah? It means at great cost to himself, he bought a copy for himself. Having scriptures for yourself was not an ancient world reality. Having books for yourself was hardly an ancient world reality. Every synagogue had one copy of, of the scriptures. And this man buys one for himself. Notice here he's reading Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked him, do you understand what you are reading and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. This is Isaiah 53. The suffering servant, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has gone his own way. But the Lord laid the iniquity of us upon his shoulders. By his stripes we are healed, right? It's that passage. So he's reading it. It continues here. In his humiliation, justice was denied to him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you does this prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down in the water, Philip and the eunuch, and baptized him. Okay. Now, I have a question for you. In all of Isaiah, um, why is he reading this passage? Now, this story is full of divine appointments, right? Philip, by the Spirit of God, shows up in the wilderness is prompted to run alongside, the, uh, uh, run alongside the chariot, right? Is received into it. It's, it's all of these things. But he has a specific question, doesn't he? He says, who is this man talking about, himself or another? Why does he care? Why is he interested in this particular servant? It's because he's read more than just Isaiah 53. He's kept reading. Listen. Just a few chapters later, in Isaiah 56. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Do you hear the innuendo at the end of that? It's intentional. Progency. A legacy is cut off for the eunuch. No future, no children. 
But God says, I'm going to do something that gives the eunuch a home in my house. I'm going to go do something that gives the eunuch a legacy in my name. Something greater than sons and daughters. Now remember, put the whole story together. The eunuch goes to Jerusalem and he's not led into the temple. He buys the prophet Isaiah and he reads of a time coming when he will have a place in the house of God. And he knows that it has something to do with this one who comes and changes everything, the suffering servant. If you go and read Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 66, you'll see that everything that flows from 54 on is a byproduct of 53. He sees this. That's why he wants to know who it is that's going to set everything right. And Philip begins and he talks with him about Jesus. Starting with that passage and moving through the scriptures, he leads him to the Lord. But here's the thing. What does the eunuch ask? Look here at the very end of the passage. Oops, sorry, that's the one I wanted. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Is there room for me? Will I be accepted? Is there a place for me in God's plan through Jesus Christ? Is there a place in me, for me in the community and the church? Remember, that's what baptism is about. It's joining the church. He wants to know if there's room for him in the church. This is the message we have for the intersex. This is the message we have for the gender dysphoric. We understand their condition from a biblical sense. We believe that Jesus will set it all right and that he's been ready and waiting to invite them into the house. What would cause us to prevent them? What would hinder them? We have to find a way to make place for the eunuch, for the single, for the same-sex attracted, for the intersex, for the gender dysphoric. And re let me remind you that many of these people are going to be into a deep cadence of walking in the wrong direction, and we have to accept them right where they are. This means that there will be people who go through transgender uh, sex changes. And do we have to say, before you can come in, you need to change back? No, it may distinctly shape the way they express their gender, but it's going to be awkward. They're going to be a eunuch, and that's okay. We have to rediscover the value of this thing. Okay. Jesus' words back in Matthew 19 don't just open the door for these things. They create a vocation for these people, a path, a good life, a, a way of holiness. Okay? Now, this acceptance of the eunuch, this place in the church, doesn't eradicate gender, even for the intersex or transgender individual nor does it allow them to express their gender in any way they please. Their gender expression becomes an aspect of faith, not merely of who they really were or who they really are, but who they will become. Okay, when Jesus sets things right. It also includes some possible natural restrictions, like the impossibility of marriage, which would negate some sort of sexual free-for-all. Right? When there is ambiguous gender, it makes marriage an ambiguous thing. And so it's going to sometimes close some of those doors, but they can follow Jesus. And they can have a place in our family, the church, and experience the intimacy and the love and the fellowship that comes with that. And they're to see their disability as an opportunity to follow and glorify Jesus. A stewardship, 
maybe even a cross to bear, but a good one. Here's another window. John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. Now, Jesus goes on to heal this man. And we all recognize that a miraculous healing does glorify God, but is that the only way a fallen condition can lead to the glorification of God? No. In other words, we need to watch out for this idea that the only thing Jesus offers people with disability, including sexual disabilities, is redemption from the disability, when it actually might be redemption of the disability. Disability is another place where the church has not always done a good job of uh, thinking through what these things mean and how they'll turn out and how we make a place for people like this. Um, Kelby Carlson, talking about the general concept of disability, says this. There are few things more potentially useful to the disabled experience than the idea of vocation. Vocation places disability in a wider spectrum of the sacred calling. It implies that disabled people and their able-bodied counterparts are on equal spiritual footing. More than that, it suggests that disabled people can be seen as conduits for God's grace and service rather than only images of a broken creation that needs fixing. In other words, eunuchs should not just be marks that something's wrong with the world, right? Disabled people shouldn't just be marks of what's wrong with the world, but actually have a calling to the glory of God. This doctrine of vocation restores the image of God to the disabled in response to the worry that disability is an evidence of sin. One can reply precisely to the contrary. While brokenness itself is evidenced of a creation longing for release from bondage, an individual's disability is subversively a venue for Christ to display his glory. Isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians? That his weakness is where God's strength is perfected? Now, there's a lot of really interesting things thinking about disability at large right now and what it means even in the afterlife. There's a, a local guy, a professor at SPU, who wrote a book on his, um, I believe it's his Down syndrome brother. And he said, I am fully convinced that the fallen aspects of my brother's Down syndrome will be completely removed when he's redeemed by Christ and the new creation. He says, but there is a significant portion of Down syndrome that is my brother. And he says, he'll still have that same identity. It just won't be tainted or twisted. What if, and, and let me remind you that the single walk of a eunuch's life on this world is much more conformed to the life that is to come than ours as married folks. Another thing to keep in mind here is that for the Christian, suffering is real, is true. It's something God cares about. In fact, unique of all other religions, he didn't just come up with a way to fix it. He entered into it willingly and bore it. Okay? Totally different than any other way out there. Um, but like George MacDonald says, Jesus didn't suffer so that we might not. 
He suffered so that our suffering might be like his. It's redemptive. It serves a purpose. It has a value. Um, These words here uh, that we're about to read are the words of a uh, patient of Mark Yarhouse's, reflecting on their own gender dysphoria and their Christian confession. Leading up to this, Yarhouse says, what's true about the integrity paradigm and what's true about the diversity paradigm is brought together for the Christian and the redemption of Christ. Let me explain. There are three paradigms Mark Yarhouse lays out for how we think about transgender. Integrity paradigm says there is a reality in the world, there is a pattern, there is a truth, and that's what matters, okay? Um, Then there is the uh, disability paradigm. Something's wrong here. How do we care for these people and help these people? That's the clinician paradigm, okay? Then there's the diversity paradigm. This is a way that you are different. It should be celebrated, and there's a place for you, okay? Now, generally, we as Christians fall in the integrity paradigm. Generally, the LGBT community and, uh, and advocates and allies, they fall in the diversity paradigm. But Mark Yarhouse points out that we shouldn't throw out the diversity paradigm altogether as Christians. And the reason is because diversity is both primarily about two things, identity and community. And we should recognize both the need for those and have an answer for those. But what he points out here is the two come together at the cross. Identity is found in brokenness. As a friend of mine who has experienced and continues to experience gender dysphoria has shared, suffering in Christianity is not only meaningless, or sorry, not only not meaningless, it is ultimately one of the most powerful media for the transmission of meaning. We can stand in adoration between the cross and kneel and kiss the wood that bore the body of our Savior, because this is the means by which the ugly, meaningless, atheistic suffering of the world, the problem of evil, was transmuted into the living water, the blood of Christ, the wellspring of creation. The great paradox here is that the tree of death and suffering is the tree of life. This central paradox in Christianity allows us to love our own brokenness precisely because it is through that brokenness that we image the broken body of our God and the highest expression of divine love. That God in some sense wills it to be so seems evident in Gethsemane. Christ prays, not my will, but thine be done. And when God's will is done, it involves the scourge and the nails. I'm missing part of the quote here. Oh, no, here it is. It also always struck me as particularly fitting and beautiful that when Christ is resurrected, his body is not returned to the state of perfection as the body of Adam and Eden but rather still bears the marks of his suffering and death. And indeed, that is precisely through these marks that he is known by Thomas. There's a lot that we could think through and chew on, but most importantly, there's meaning for those who suffer in Christianity. Now, very practically, and then we'll take a question or two. What does this mean for someone who's experiencing gender dysphoria? If you read Mark Yarhouse's book, as, an, as a clinician, he's trying to find a way to lessen that dysphoria or to make it, at the very least, bearable. Okay? And so he, uh, he suggests a whole range of possibilities. 
and they're ones that I think you should consider as well. I've had to think through these. I don't think all of them are viable options for Christian faithfulness. Um, but he mentions, what about, uh, what about wearing undergarments of the opposite gender just to take the edge off it? It's not public. It's not expressive. It's just private. He says, what about hormonal treatments at the lowest level just to remove the feeling? And then he goes on and he says, if that doesn't work, maybe it needs to be hormonal at a higher level. And he even says, in some cases, surgery would be a possibility. Now, remember two things. One, as a good clinician, he provides his opinion, but he leaves his life in the path of those who walk it. Um, uh, two, he expresses directly, knowing some people will push back on that in the book, um, by basically saying, in some cases, it's a choice between transition surgery and suicide. And all I, all I would say to you is that we should get the concern that would lead Mark Yarhouse to make those decisions, and we should, again, have compassion on those who are desperate. But I would suggest that ultimately, underlyingly, if meaning is provided for the person, then a way forward is going to be two things. One, it's going to be progressive in nature, and a partnership with people around. It's going to be a community project over a lifetime. Uh, and two, it's going to be custom fit. It's going to meet people where they are, and it's going to point them where God is taking them. But all of that is going to be nuanced in these types of things. Um, but ultimately, that's just a way of saying the same thing about how we respond to all of the brokenness we find in our human condition. If you talk to an infertile couple in the church, where they are at and where they need to get to, you may be able to place those places, but what they need to do right now should not be a one-size-fits-all solution. Okay. So, that helps us to kind of lay out the reality. And like I said, there are ideological concerns in this, um, but where those concerns touch life in actual physical conditions an actual experience of gender dysphoria, we now have a better understanding of these things at this point. Does anybody have any questions? Yes, Joshua. Just belt it out, man. You can do it. Like, how do you think is a, like, a good way to, like, minister and kind of, like, help people that we know personally who struggle with general dysphoria? Mm -hmm. I think first and foremost, we need to recognize that the majority of the population you'll encounter with these conditions are currently outside the uh, church and not identifying as Christians, which is ultimately that we need to find a way to welcome them into our lives, into the church, okay? Um, I also think uh, that again, just like we talked about with homosexuality, many of us have a an agenda of faithfulness that just feels the need to plant the flag on what we actually believe as soon as possible. And like I said at the beginning of the night, I think that's primarily driven from fear. It's not necessarily fear of the other people. Sometimes it's fear of just us maintaining our authentic Christian identity or what type of th uh, these types of things, but it cannot be shown to be coming from a motive of love. And so we have to alter that first. Um, uh, I do think as the relationship is developed, 
by asking questions and understanding where people are at and how they came to those conclusions, uh, even by pushing back on those things and asking how they reconcile those things or what they think about those things, um, is a completely appropriate posture and it's where we should spend most of our time. Um, I think as people come like the Ethiopian eunuch to encounter Christ, they become open to the same idea that we all have, that everything we know is wrong. Okay? Um, but God has no prerequisites for these people before he will save them. And once he saves them, then what becomes significant uh, is the follow-through, which should be celebratory, which should be you know, patient and long-suffering, which should be communal, um, which should leave room for the Holy Spirit to work, uh, and all of those things. Um, uh, you know, and, and most of the time, people have a pretty good sense that these things are not the way they should be. People have a pretty good sense that if they're going to follow Jesus, it's going to change their mind on these things. Um, and so most of the time, you know, that's more of midwifery than it is catechism. Right? We don't have to shape people into a Christian understanding. We just have to come alongside them in it. Um, and, then, and then finally, again, we have to find a way uh, where, where we talk about these issues as if they're human issues, where people don't feel like they're the only ones who are dealing with these types of things. We all know the full. We all know suffering. We all know distinguishing forms of disability, and maybe you don't have um, dysfunction from your biological development, but maybe you have it from your aging. Okay, there's lots of places where there's overlap, and by talking about these things and making room for them and recognizing that it's really the same thing, um, we will go a long way on these things. And let me just add one more thing to those of you who teach. If you touch on these issues, again, please don't talk about them as over there issues, but right here issues. Talk as if people in your audience are dealing with these things. And I promise you, if you're a pastor and you do, they will be even if they aren't now. Because your church will learn, oh, my friend is welcome in this church. Oh, Christianity is for them. Yeah. Did I see one more, Austin? Yeah. How have you personally carved out a place for transgender um, or even LGBTQ people in your own congregation? And how would you recommend other right. churches do that? Uh, let me just remind you that we have a home field advantage. Uh, and so it's not something we have to aspire to, we just have to leave the doors unlocked. It's just, it's just a part of our life. Um, the real challenge, and this is something I really struggle with, and, and the reason is not because we haven't done these things with our church, it's because my church is like a flowing river. It's always changing, and so anything we do just flushes downstream in just a couple of months, a couple of years. Um, but the real thing that's a struggle to do is to cultivate a collective church understanding where everybody is on the same page about these things. Um, and, and what I really struggle with is how often people dealing with these things are present in our congregation and are welcome to sit there but are not welcomed. We have a, a transgender woman named Miracle who's come to our church on and off uh, probably for two years now. And uh, miracle never sits in the sanctuary because it's just too much. It's just overwhelming. And so she takes her seat in the foyer 
and when she comes, she usually comes, you know, consecutive weeks, eight or nine weeks, and then she'll be gone for a while. She's, she's always been present and around, and there's a small group of people who know Miracle by name, who talk with her, who interact with her outside of the church. We have a lot of social workers in our church, and she has a lot of other related issues, and so they're in and out of her life pretty regularly. Um, all of those things are really good things, but recently we had a picnic, and she boldly came over and joined us for the picnic and was there for the duration of it. And I didn't see anyone sit down and talk to her for the whole picnic. It's hard. It's hard to cultivate this thing, and it's also messy. You end up asking questions like, where are the lines? Where are the concerns? Take this church, for example. You have male and female restrooms. How are you going to handle that? And instead of going ideological and trying to make this a culture war battle, in certain places it should be irrelevant. I haven't been in the women's restroom here, so I can't speak of this, but the men's restroom can operate as a, as a single stall, anybody use restroom. And then it's not an issue. It's so easy to solve. You're both welcoming and not ideologically compromising. But we should be prepared to make changes to make these issues not issues when they shouldn't be issues. Um, more broadly than that, you have to find a way to interact with LGBTQ people outside the church. One of the things we did when we first got to Capitol Hill is we got uh, involved with Lifelong. Lifelong AIDS Alliance has been on Capitol Hill since the AIDS epidemic in the 80s where they were just taking chicken soup to men dying in the parks of AIDS. They've been around a long time and so the first thing we got involved doing, because we went and said, how can we help? is they had us in gay bars handling, handling out literature about getting tested for AIDS and condoms. And we had a long talk about it. The question was, are we in some way, you know, enabling a lifestyle? And we came to the same conclusion that we can't see these people come to Jesus if they're dying. And so if this will just stay the possibility, but since then we've moved on from that and we got involved with the Chicken Soup Brigade arm, which means we've been delivering meals to shut-ins dealing with all sorts of medical complications who are also our neighbors. Just a route on Capitol Hill, we did that for years and years. We walked in the AIDS walk every year. Uh, I can't tell you how often when these people walk into our church doors, we already know them. Okay. The intersex woman that I mentioned earlier, I'd taken her food. I knew her by name. I'd had conversations with her out on the street because she loves children and, you know, I have a pack of them. It's very noticeable when I'm out. Um, and so you've got to find a way, a way to do that that pushes back against this narrative that basically says, I already know Christians want nothing to do with me, so why would I go to where they are? Why would I go to their home turf? I saw one more question here and then we should probably close for the night. Mm-hmm. Are open and affirming. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So this is what I've found personally. Most of the open and affirming churches, not all of them, but most of them don't have a lot going for them. It's not hard to be a better loving community than most open and affirming churches. 
it's definitely not hard to be a better gospel-centered community that loves and worships Jesus than most open and affirming churches. Again, there are exceptions. There are what they call third-way churches who basically say, we're going to support you whatever your convictions are on this issue. You're both welcome here. And a lot of times they have loving community and they are gospel-centered. They have their own problem because there's no way a same-sex attracted person who's chosen a life of celibacy can feel supported when marriages of same-sex couples around them are being celebrated. It's, it's, it's patient progressivism is what it is. It's a church that is willing to wait on stuffy old straight conservatives to get with the program. That's usually what Third Way is. Um, but for the most part, um, it's, it's easy to, you know, to contrast. We have an open and affirming church right next to us, and she's gone now. She just got fired, but the pastor there used to scratch her head on why my church will sit through an hour-long sermon, and her church can't handle 15 minutes. And I told her, I said, it's because I teach the Bible, and people want to know what the Bible says, you know. Um, and, and so there, there are ways, but there are so many questions and challenges there. Let me just remind you, very simply, that church discipline biblically is a local church thing. Paul doesn't even excommunicate the guy in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. He says, you have to do that, church. Even though he's an apostle, he doesn't lay it down the line. And so, so we need to watch out for thinking that we can't even eat with these folks who are in a different place. That's just not how church discipline is designed to function. The whole pain of church discipline is the removal of a church community. I can excommunicate people I never or I don't agree with on the internet, but what does it mean, right? Um, but that doesn't deny the fact that there may be an appropriate time to have the conversation. And a lot of times it needs to be in just the recognition that this is an area where we disagree. And I'll tell you one last story and then I'll let you go. The organist for the church that we gather at, I've known for years. Um, he's also been my neighbor for years. Uh, we lived on this side of the church. He lived on this side of the church. My bedroom window overlooks his backyard. He's come to my um, mom's house for Thanksgiving. Uh, we've had a long-standing relationship. But there was a period of time where, um, where he was really struggling, uh, and it meant that he was doing a lot of extremely loud, angry yelling in his backyard. And for a couple of months, I just thought it was really bad cell phone conversations until I realized there wasn't a phone. I didn't really know what to do about it because we were neighbors and I cared about them, but how do you bring something like that up? And so I just sat on it. When it happened, I prayed for him and things like that. Uh, and then one night he was doing it and a girl who was walking by on Capitol Hill thought he was yelling at her and called the cops. And so I watched this whole thing play out and he called me the next morning and he said, hey, can we talk? And we sat down and he said, look, I know, I know you've heard me and I'm so embarrassed, but here's what's going on. He said, would you be willing just to sit down and let me kind of talk through these things. And so we got talking, and that's when he and I had the talk, because he's, uh, he's a gay man in his 60s who is, uh, who is HIV positive um, and has been present on Capitol Hill forever. And I just said, look, if we're going to be in a counseling relationship, you need to understand that this is a place where we don't see eye to eye. And I hope you know that doesn't deny my love for you or the dignity that I would have if we talk. It just means there are certain avenues of this conversation that might surprise you. And ultimately, I don't want you to find out from anyone else. Um, it was jarring for him. But I still have a relationship with him. 
you know, and we still talk about these things. And, and he, knows, he knows these things, and I didn't feel the need to have a debate about it right then. Um, uh, but ultimately, my church collectively has continued to love him. You know, our services are back to back. Sometimes he shows up and he's stressed out and somebody in my congregation will pray for him. You know, there's, there's a presence there. Uh, you know, holistically, the truth is in his life. It doesn't have to be a constant, you know, set to 11 volume announcement on repeat. Um, but, but I would suggest to you, this is going to be messy as we try things out, but it's not impossible. Um, and it's, it's something that the church needs to practice till we get it right, because the truth is we do this all the time in all sorts of other settings. The only one that makes this so awkward is it's so public, it's so visible, it's so controversial, it's such a hot topic in these types of things, but it's really no different than how you respond to any other issue in your non-Christian friends' lives. All right, let me pray and let you guys go. Lord, in the early church, what was so profound to the world was this completely outlandish sexual ethic and the way that the church cared for those who were rejected by society, those who were on the outside, those who were marginalized or in the minority or unaccepted or those who had just too many problems. God, we've got to find that cadence again. We've got to find that balance. I pray that you would help us, Lord, uh, to, to find a way so that people wouldn't even have to ask like that eunuch, what would prohibit me from joining your church? But instead we can just embrace people with open arms and say, welcome to the rank of sinners in waiting who have been washed and justified and given a new identity in Christ and will one day be made new. We need that too, Lord. Help us to see our own place in your kingdom and that we did not deserve it or earn it, but that you freely and at great cost to yourself brought us into your kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a good night.